This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. As a boy, Michael Frank lived on a tree island surrounded by miles of sawgrass in the Everglades. Be careful now, there's some holes in here too. Lime rock underneath, but then again, there's holes. Islands like his once dotted the vast shallow river of grass that spilled over the banks of Lake Okeechobee and flowed south towards the place where we're walking, across the sawgrass marshes and south to the tip of Florida. The marshes formed a bowl between the coastal ridge along South Florida's east coast and the cypress and mangrove swamps to the west before dumping into the Gulf of Mexico and Florida Bay. If you feel a soft spot, there's a hole in the lime rock. Frank is showing me how to find water in the dry season by digging a hole. It's kind of like a well. What you would do, you you go ahead and make your hole. You know, put the mud on the side, this way you know where it is. <laughs> it is stuff on it. And during the dry season, the only way you can get water is through that hole. And not only you, the rest of the animals would, would, would congregate at that hole. You want to go further? Or you... Yeah, yeah. My, my knees are gone, so that's why I gotta walk gently. Frank's an old man now. He's a tribal elder with the Miccosukee tribe, and the world he grew up in is mostly gone. The sprawling river was dammed up to make way for farms and a booming real estate market. This part of the Everglades is just a sliver of the tribe's ancestral homelands, making up the 75,000-acre Alligator Alley Reservation here in the center of the Everglades. The tribe has a special name for it. Kahele. Kahele means a bright lit place. It's like shining. uh, Look at that. Kahele, look at it. It's shining, the water from the sun. Hayele means, say hayele. Hayele means light. It's lit up. You're listening to Bright Lit Place, a podcast from WLRN News distributed by the NPR Network with support from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Over the next six episodes, we'll retrace the decades-long fight over land, water, and the willpower to save what's left of this watery wilderness. We need a change. We keep doing the same thing year after year after year. Historically, the Everglades covered nearly 4,000 square miles, a river of grass 100 miles long and 40 miles across. Now, only a fifth of that wilderness is left. The rest has been carved into pieces to provide a massive system for water supply and flood control. That infrastructure paved the way for modern South Florida. It's also what's now killing the Everglades. Too much water gets stored in some places. Other parts are dying of thirst. We have lived according with with nature and with the animals and the birds. But development, people want more land, people want more excess from here to there. That comes first. With climate change making natural events like hurricanes and wildfires worse, 
We now know that getting our natural systems, like the Everglades, to work again is more important than ever. But reversing the damage in the Everglades has been an epic fight. We're dealing with an environmental crisis. Because if we start finger pointing, we're just going to go all the way back to the colonization of America. We're going to focus on the biggest effort yet, a sprawling comprehensive Everglades restoration plan approved by Congress in 2000. It's often called SERP. The plan is like a giant puzzle trying to reconnect the pieces of the Everglades now divided by levees and canals and farms and cities. Originally, it was expected to cost just under $8 billion, split between the U.S. government and Florida. At the end of 20 years, more than 60 projects were supposed to save the wilderness. It could have also given Florida a head start on fighting climate change. But that's not what happened. Growing up, Frank's family lived on a tree island called Highland. And when one of my grandfather's friends told him, hey, there's a there's a, an island over here which nobody ever lived. It's got a lot of trees and it's high, and when the water's high, it never goes underwater. So that's when we moved from Castellapo all the way to that island. And that's where I was born, and most of our brothers and sisters. The Everglades is where the tribe lived and sought refuge during multiple wars. There were more of the tree islands then, and they were bigger. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, all lived in airy chickies and farmed corn or raised pigs. But these days, the islands that are left are smaller. That's because the bright-lit place now sits in an area that's regularly flooded and hemmed in by levees. It's used to hold the water that replenishes South Florida's drinking water aquifer and to keep the coast from flooding. Instead of a wide river of grass flowing across ridges and sloughs like corrugated cardboard, the water gets squeezed into canals and compartments where it can remain unnaturally high. My island's always about a foot underwater every year, but during the, like a heavy hurricane season, it's about two, three feet underwater every year. Now, all the big trees, the reason why we went to the island, because there was big trees, they don't exist no more. They are dead. They are dead. Frank's literally watching his homeland wash away. My way of life, living in the Everglades, it's gone. It's beautiful, but it's just a skeleton compared to what it used to be. Oh, wow, nice loop. Nice cast yet. Oh, fish iron. Oh, put it back out there, cast it back out. About 60 miles away, the opposite is happening in Florida Bay and the Upper Keys. Instead of too much water, the southern tip of the Everglades is getting too little. Put it back out there, cast it back out there. Quick little strips. Keep coming, keep coming. We're in Florida Bay with fishing guide Tim Klein. So it's just a, it's an ugly cycle, you know, and and you know. We desperately need more consistent water. This is where Tim Klein grew up, on a necklace of islands hanging off South Florida, surrounded by some of the best fishing flats in the world. 
Acres of seagrass meadows carved up by channels are inhabited by bonefish, tarpon, and permit, the holy trinity of saltwater fly fishing. Years on the flats made Klein one of the best guides in the Keys or anywhere. But here, too little fresh water is reaching the bay. It now gets about half of what it received a century ago. That means in the dry season, the ocean can get too salty. That damages seagrass and drives away fish. And that is killing Klein's way of life. You know, like the most famous bonefish spots in our backyard is what we call downtown, Shell Key, Lignum Vitae. The grass on those flats are, are you know, like not 70% of the grass is gone. And that's where, you know, the bonefish fed and stuff. So we, the thing that we've lost, uh, you know, starting, you know, 10, 12 years ago is the, our, our, our big bonefish. These days, the champion flats guide spends more of his time leading eco-tours. You take a short ride and then you enter into the Everglades National Park. You just go into just heaven in my eyes. I, I got all new clientele now because I've been doing this for, what, 38 years now. And the people I've fished in the past are just not here anymore, you know. Restoration promised to deliver enough fresh water to help revive the seagrass meadows where bonefish use their tough snouts to hunt for shrimp and crabs. It still might, but all the while, Florida keeps growing, with more housing sprouting up along the Everglades' borders. Climate change driving up sea levels and creating hotter conditions just compounds the stress. The quandary here isn't so different from other parts of the country, where we're trying to undo the damage from turning nature into infrastructure without considering the consequences. The Colorado River is drying up as demand explodes in fast-growing western states. Building neighborhoods in fire country while trying to put out every single fire has left forests too dense and vulnerable to blowing up in hotter conditions. And channeling the Mississippi River for flood control has robbed the Louisiana coastline of the sediment that once kept it intact against waves. Instead, sea level rise is eating it away. For Klein and those of us who grew up in South Florida, restoration has always been kind of a white noise in the background. It promises to restore America's Everglades and Florida Bay and reduce the algae-causing discharges into our coastal We've already spent $8 billion on Everglades restoration, but three decades after that plan was first conceived, it's now expected to cost three times more and take up to 50 years to finish, not 20. And the Everglades is still in trouble. In this podcast, we're going to try to figure out why. Wrangling competing interests to fix the Everglades has taken a scrum of government agencies, generations of politicians, and piles of plans. Things have changed a lot since the comprehensive plan was passed, but the Everglades has never gotten enough of the three things it needs most. Land, fresh water, and willpower. My name is uh, Thomas Van Lent, and uh, I'm a retired hydrologist. Van Lin has been working on restoration both for the government and environmental groups since the 1980s, modeling how water should flow to restore parts of the ecosystem. The formula for restoration isn't hard from the ecological perspective. It's putting it back. It's only hard from if you have to maintain all these other things and you can't affect anybody and you can't have any other consequence. That's hard. 
when he first started working for the South Florida Water Management District, Van Liet used to take these long solo paddling trips around the 10,000 islands. That's the maze of small islands where the Everglades meets the Gulf of Mexico. They were once a magnet for plume hunters and then pot smugglers in the 70s. He'd paddle sometimes up to nine days. It was a way to connect with what he was trying to model on his computer. There are things you, if you go out there a lot for year after year, you do start to notice. And it is things like no bonefish or that whole sweep of North Cape was black mangroves and now it's eroded. The dunes have moved way in. And yeah, it, it, uh, it's both beautiful and alarming at the same time. And fixes are now harder because of climate change. Sea levels have risen a half foot in Biscayne Bay since Florida first started trying to reconnect the Everglades. So canals have to be kept higher to stop salt water seeping further inland and threatening to contaminate freshwater aquifers. Hurricanes are worse. Over the last three decades, nine major hurricanes have hit Florida. Only four had crossed the state in the same period before that. Nutrient pollution in Lake Okeechobee from farms and neighborhoods is also as high as ever. During the rainy season, the lake often drains that pollution to the St. Lucie and Caloosahatchee estuaries, adding to dirty water already piling up on the crowded coast. Every spring, those communities now brace for toxic algae blooms. Below the lake, stormwater treatment marshes were built after a court ordered the state to clean water. But they're maxed out cleaning pollution from sugar fields, so very little lake water gets cleaned and sent to the Everglades and Florida Bay during the dry season when Klein needs it. There's a well-known saying about Everglades restoration, that it's a test, and if we pass, we get to save the planet. You know, there are kind of a million different ways that we are failing this test. Michael Grunwald wrote the book The Swamp, The Everglades, Florida, and the Politics of Paradise, a few years after the Comprehensive Everglades Plan was created. But as I kind of got deeper into the swamp and deeper into my obsession, what I really started to see this as, as a moral test, as sort of a test of our ability to step back, um, to not always put human greed first, um, to do things that are uncomfortable for future generations. That's not to say there hasn't been progress, especially lately. Funding is at a record high. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis made restoration a centerpiece of his administration. Democratic President Joe Biden has spent more than any other president. But the compromises that planners say were necessary to make the plan possible making sure farmers and utilities get their water and growing cities and neighborhoods have flood control, have also left it crippled. You had to have something that the sugar industry and the rock mining industry and the development industry and every municipality in Florida and the state and the Republicans and the Democrats, um, and also some of the environmentalists at least, could sign on to. And that's how they did it. Grunwald said the consensus helped clear the way for getting money approved in Congress and in Florida, but not getting restoration done. There hasn't been the kind of hammer that you've had on water quality where there's been a judge saying, no, the water is not clean. You have to make it clean. There's nobody and no way for somebody to say, no, the Everglades is not restored. You have to make it restored. 
You're listening to Bright Lit Place, a podcast from WLRN News, distributed by the NPR Network. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. Coming up, how the Army Corps' water management forced the Miccosukee out of their island homes. The tribe said, you're trying to give us land, which is less than the land you took away from us the last time you tried to give us land. And this isn't even land we want. That's next. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares Betterment's philosophy on investing. No matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Get started at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. The idea of filling this canal is it's just a conduit for nutrients down into the reservation. Amy Castaneda is the Water Resources Director for the Miccosukee Tribe. She's driving her four-wheel drive truck to a levee on the reservation that runs alongside that canal where we were walking earlier. It's now dumping pollution on tribal land. So we're going to head west to the L-28 Interceptor now. Drive down the triangle and come back up. Welcome back. You're listening to Bright Lit Place, a podcast from WLRN News, distributed by the NPR Network. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. The Corps started dredging pieces of their big flood system in the 40s. The L-28 and the Interceptor were carved into the Everglades 20 years later. The tribe's tree islands still go by names like Stinking Hammock, Gumtree, and Pigjaw, but now they're surrounded by canals, gates, and pumps with numbers and letters for names. All the canals and levees were meant to drain and control the Everglades. It's been a disaster for the Miccosukee, once essentially an island nation inhabiting the tree islands. They moved to an island that had big trees, so they could use that as a shelter, cooling off. Michael Frank, the tribal elder, sits in the truck's passenger seat. Since the 40s, high water has wiped out nearly half the Everglades' tree islands. The biggest island of all, called Newtown, served as kind of a town square. This is one of the places Frank's family fled to 200 years ago to hide from the U.S. Army. Then the Army Corps sent their dredges to split Newtown in two. Here it is. The island starts on that side about 400 feet north and west of it. It ends here. When they make the canal, they cut right through it. 
when he was little, Frank says everything the family needed could be found on the tree islands. Back in the old days, when we got to the, uh, behind Chickachobe, we used to go to the canal and drink from the canal. Take a bath, wash, clean. It was crystal clear. You could see all the way to the bottom. And you would see uh, sometimes even uh, torpens, even fish that's in the bay, they would swim all the way. Yeah, we, we, we use a spear to gig our fish, right? You see a big old topin. Oh man, I'm gonna have big dinner. Boom. Your spear was gone. Anything that could could migrate their way in the canals, they made it out into the Everglades because it was crystal clear. As South Florida grew, the Army Corps needed to keep the swampy Everglades from flooding neighborhoods along the Atlantic coast. Mongo said that they even they came here, went hunting, visited each other. There was no levee. But the government's levees and canals gradually converted the Miccosukee Reservation into storage space. Frank says already many families had abandoned homes in the area. So everybody moved out. That's, that's why when they came, they just uh, cut about a third of it off from the original uh, island. And, and there are islands out there in the water country, every three that the islands is called Yadmotagale. Yadmotagale. Inyagne means. This, this, is a, this is a camp where the, where the, where the natives came and hit. That Mutali was people who ran. With the water consistently flooding the islands, his family was forced to move to higher ground along the Tamiami Trail. The cross-state highway completed in 1928 that created both a dam across the river of grass and a new border for the tribe. Overnight, there's water here because the levees, the gates were closed and the water can't flow naturally. So that's how we got out of there, because we're not a fish, we need dry ground. You walk around, but you have to put planks from chicken to chicken. Frank told me the government trucked in fill and built houses along the highway a few years later. It's big houses, and it bought 50 feet, about what, maybe 70, 80 feet long houses, chickies, and homes. And here, my, my dad, my mom, and everybody, we couldn't move in because it had walls. Generations had perfected inhabiting the swamp. Learning to live with the mosquitoes and sweat was hard-earned. The chickies are a testament to that. So we just used uh, the house as a storage room. You know what we did? We built chickies all surrounding that house, that beautiful new house, wooden house. We used maybe the bathroom every now and then. But mostly it was used for storage room because our culture forbids us to live in a, in a house that's got walls. He says eventually people put palmetto frond thatch on the roofs to make them look like chickies and moved in. But when Frank talks about his home, he means the tree islands. Without the tree islands, Frank says there would be no Mikasuki. Back in the, uh, 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 1949 or uh, 48, my grandfather and grandmother moved there. That's when they started working on the levees, 28, coming north. And when they were going to working on that, they told my grandfather and grandmother, if that day ever come, your island goes underwater, we'll come and build up your, your camp. Which they never did. It was three, four feet underwater, and that, but they never came and built up, built the camps up. That's Amy Castaneda, the Water Resources Director for the tribe. 
were driving alongside a canal dredged to help drain farm fields north of the reservation. The Army Corps finished dredging the canals and levees across the water conservation areas in 1962, the same year the U.S. government formally recognized the Miccosukees as a sovereign nation. So should I turn around or yes. keep going straight? Yes, you ready? Turn around. We've seen this side, got to see the other side. And you can't drive straight, so <laughs> maybe a small, smaller road you can drive straight. Let's see. <laughs> you like them ditches, you like <laughs> to go in it. Now the canals carry runoff from sugarcane fields, pastures, and neighborhoods farther north, dumping pollution on the reservation. Before water can enter the conservation areas, it has to be nearly scrubbed clean of phosphorus. The limit is just 10 parts per billion, about 10 drops for every 500 barrels of water. The reason it has to be so low is because hardly any phosphorus exists naturally in the Everglades. It all comes from fertilizer. When you add it to the Everglades, phosphorus starts destroying the periphyton. Those are the brown, spongy mats floating all over the Everglades that hold algae and microbes and plant debris. They're the foundation of the Everglades' food chain. After a while, the phosphorus also supercharges the growth of other plants that can clog and crowd out the sawgrass, like cattails. So for decades, the canals have acted like a toxic drip, fueling vegetation now choking and filling in parts of the reservation. More than a drip, it's like a faucet running 24-7. Frank asked how high the phosphorus levels are at the end of the canal, where Castaneda tests water flowing from the farm fields in the Everglades agricultural area. The end of the levee is usually 80s to 100. Um, but we have spikes where it's over 100. That's 8 to 10 times what it should be. Stinking Hammock, another island where Frank's family once lived, is getting harder and harder to reach. And so in order for us to get there, we have to clear with chainsaws the trail every year. Without clearing that trail every year and airboats using it, you wouldn't even know that there's a trail there. So that's why I was saying it was like, it was a ta- this is a taking of the tribes. There's no access there unless you're physically going out there and mechanically removing the vegetation. There's now a plume fueling vegetation that covers nearly 5,000 acres. The tribe wants the Corps to fill in the canals to help deal with the pollution and rebuild some tree islands. Better for naturally, it's better for the environment, but they they want to control it all because of man. Man has, has more rights to the water and to the trees and everything than the animals, which is contrary. We have no rights. We have to belong, we have lived uh, according with, with nature and with the animals and the birds. But development, people want more land, people want more access from here to there. That comes first. When Michael Frank said there would be no Miccosukee without the Everglades, it's because of the way the swamp literally saved the tribe when the U.S. government was trying to wipe it out. In the 1700s, as European settlers tried to stake out territory, the Miccosukee were living in the Apalachicola River Valley in Georgia and Alabama and North Florida. The Miccosukee were kind of right smack in the, the spot that no Europeans controlled. Edward Ornstein is the tribe's attorney and a member of the Muscogee tribe in Alabama. 
As fighting ramped up between the British, the Spanish, and the French, the tribe moved further south and set up towns along the shores of Lake Miccosukee in Leon County. That's where Florida State Capitol is now located. They also had camps as far south as the Everglades. The folks who were living up at the Miccosukee Tribal Town, which was on the banks of Lake Miccosukee in what is today Leon County, became a hot point for resistance to the uh, newly formed United States. This would become a theme. Despite the U.S.'s repeated efforts to sign treaties and move them, the Miccosukee repeatedly fought to remain in that homeland. There was a great deal of coercion and a great deal of ambiguity about the use of force uh, that was involved in those treaty negotiations, leading to a, a great deal of duress. Even if the Miccosukee had signed, it wouldn't have mattered. The treaties were repeatedly broken. When the U.S. took control of Florida from Spain, it created a four million acre reservation in north and central Florida. But then it broke that treaty after it passed the brutal Indian Removal Act to send tribes west. In Florida, troops started rounding up people from the Miccosukee and Seminole tribes and putting them in concentration camps. While there were uh, 13 or 14 bands that were going to remove to Oklahoma, there were still three bands which would not. Despite being hugely outnumbered, they hid in the swamp and fought back. The fighting lasted for seven years before the U.S. gave up and agreed to give the Seminole and Miccosukees nearly all of southwest Florida. But that promise also wouldn't last. Congress refused to ratify the deal. Fighting broke out again, and the Miccosukee and Seminole fled further into the swamp to tree islands protected by a sea of impenetrable sawgrass. As plans to drain the swamp got underway to make way for settlers and farms, Florida carved out another reservation in 1917 on 99,000 acres in what's now Everglades National Park. But that also wouldn't last. The tribe was again forced to move when planning started to create the park, this time to Broward County, where the Seminole tribe now has its headquarters. If you're counting, this was the third time the U.S. government broke its promise and took the tribe's land. But again, one small group refused to leave, the Miccosukee. The tribe said, you're trying to give us land, which is less than the land you took away from us the last time you tried to give us land. And this isn't even land we want. That included Michael Frank's family. They kept living on the tree islands and along the trail. Today, their islands look radically different. I'm with Curtis Osceola, an attorney and the chief of staff for the Miccosukee tribe. We're in a small airboat racing across the marshes over clumps of jagged sawgrass and around stands of cypress. You can see why the Miccosukee call it the bright-lit place. We call it the bright place because of how open and clear the water used to be, right? So there was no vegetation. The, the land around this island is very open. You don't see, you know, a lot of the high grass. It's a lot of low grass. The sun, when it comes up, you can see it in the east, and then you see it set in the west, right? And that was the point. The grass boats can travel in just a few inches of water, and the marsh glitters as the boats send waves across the sawgrass. A crew from the tribal government is trying to reach one of the tree islands where Michael Frank grew up, Highland. 
first, I just wanted to show you like some of the some of the stuff we're seeing, right? Not only are the islands smaller, but many are getting overgrown with invasive species. Something like this, this shoot here, Kevin. Yeah, it's it's like a I call it elephant grass. Kevin Donaldson oversees the tribe's land resources. And then um, here, that's a pepper, yeah. On the right there. Brazilian pepper and elephant grass now grow like a wall around Pigjaw and the next stop, Highland. That's Frank's family's island. Over the years, the tribe has repeatedly sued over damaging water management practices in 1995, 2005, and 2008. The reason why Western Everglades restoration is so complex are because of all of those moving parts, all of those interests. The state agencies are managing the water. The Army Corps is, is trying to make a plan that's viable based on the geology. The private landholders want us to get off their lawn. Uh, the tribes, you know, just want their land to be used for their purposes, not for the purposes of storing and cleaning water. So, you know, all of these interests are colliding and it, it makes the planning process virtually impossible. The project to address problems on tribal lands and in the Western Everglades has been repeatedly delayed over the years. Planning restarted this year, so Osceola is trying to walk a careful line. It's like, okay, we have a problem. We're dealing with an environmental crisis. Who's got, like, come with solutions, you know? Because if we start finger pointing, we're just going to go all the way back to the colonization of America, all right? And that's not going to get us anywhere. Fewer and smaller tree islands also mean there's less space for the deer, hogs, raccoons, and other animals out here. During winter months when water is lower, that also means they're on the move more, like the day we were out there. Huh? Be a little cautious. I didn't put eyes on it. I'm 90% sure there's a bear in the wood line over here. Okay. So let's just be... Uh, I heard that crunching. Well, I heard the growl multiple yeah. times, oh. so I just want to be... Just across the clearing on the island, three other wildlife officers have their hands on their guns facing the woods. Officer Bills thinks it's a good idea if we leave quickly. Well, we can kind of just back out of here and go find another island because yeah, we, we got that. plenty just, of places. Yeah, I just don't I want everybody to be safe. You know, that's why we're here, so. Yeah. It's this wildlife, the bear, deer, otter, and others, that made the island such a good home. But now, about 250 acres of tree islands are lost every year. I'm Jenny Stiletovich, and this is Bright Lit Place, a WLRN news podcast distributed by the NPR Network. Find much more at our website, brightlitplace.org, including photos, maps, and data. Next, how things look in the underwater ecosystem that has made the Everglades a world-class destination for fly fishing. So we, need to, we just need water. Some way or another, we need water in our bay before it dies again. That's next. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today.
Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Midi Health. Women in midlife face a healthcare desert, but Midi is here to fill the gap, offering expert care for perimenopause and menopause covered by insurance. Hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, weight gain, and moodiness don't have to be accepted as just another part of aging. MIDI clinicians understand how these symptoms can connect to menopause and prescribe a wide range of solutions. Book your visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then, just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from the Kresge Foundation. Established 100 years ago, the Kresge Foundation works to expand equity and opportunity in cities across America. A century of impact, a future of opportunity. More at kresge.org. To the south, on the other side of Everglades National Park, the same water management, keeping water too high where the Miccosukee live, is leaving Florida Bay too dry. I had about 20, 22 clients for 30 years that fished me over 220 days a year you know, between that little group and then I took some other people. So I was booked all the time. This is where Tim Klein learned to be a champion fishing guide. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. Welcome back to Bright Lit Place, a podcast from WLRN News and distributed by the NPR Network. But now most of them are gone or just simply too old to stand anymore. So now I'm reinventing myself, going back to my roots, doing a lot more fun fishing, bait fishing, fly fishing. I want to go out and just have fun. Doing like this today, stopping and looking at porpoises and manatees and birds, and I just enjoy that part of the beauty. Klein has had to reinvent himself because the bonefish that made him a champion guide aren't around as much, and they're smaller. Growing up in Alamorada and going out into the bay fishing my whole life, my, the biggest indicator to me, the way I judge things, are, are fish. Or how fish are moving and disappearing. Klein's family has made its living on the bay for decades. His father prowled Biscayne Bay in the Keys, first as an officer for the state marine patrol, then as a treasure hunter and dive boat captain. He'd come home with cannonballs and pieces of eight. Klein's son, James, is a third-generation captain. Such a great playground. Like, growing up here, you know, we just were in our, in our skiffs just having a ball. Instead of bikes, Tim and his brother Robert had Boston whalers. In high school, Klein's dad got him a fancier boat. Klein then convinced his mom to let him take it to school. And that often led to skipping school and spending days on Florida Bay. Yeah, I could draw a line from, you know, Tavernier Creek out to the west and where we used to have redfish very close to Alamorada. You know, big schools of redfish and, and they're gone. There's a few here and there, but there used to be massive schools there. Massive schools from 100 to 300 fish in a school, five minutes from my house, the first set of islands out back. 
he and his friends would spend hours casting into a bucket just to get better. And to learn the bay and its maze of seagrass flats, they'd follow around older guides. That's what made the keys from Biscayne Bay to Key West, and especially Alamorada, you know, we've had the largest bonefish anywhere. That's where all the world records come from. After high school, Klein was working two jobs trying to figure things out when luck struck on a fishing trip with two buddies. Deep in the back country, they came across a couple of bales of marijuana, unattended and adrift. So they reeled in the square groupers and took them home. A commercial fisherman who also did a little smuggling lived on the street where Klein lived. He says the guy paid them $20,000 for the bales. Klein used his cut to support himself for the next year while he learned to flats fish. That caught the attention of a well-known guide named Jack Brothers. Brothers then loaned Klein the money to get his captain's license. James, Klein's son, said he never doubted he'd wind up in the family business. He used to pick me on the charter boats when I was nine years old. So it was just like, I was just in the scene my whole life growing up. I've been catching sailfish on fly rod when I was 10 years old. I've been doing it as long as I can remember. And that meant learning the bay like his dad. I didn't have my first Xbox or PlayStation until I was like 18 years old, so I moved out. He didn't allow me to have a GPS on my boat until I turned like 17, 18. This was a paper map and a compass. It's just, it's just, just like driving in your hometown, I guess. It's just like, a, I know I have the back of my hand now. But with so few bonefish left, he doesn't expect to follow exactly in his dad's footsteps. It's never going to be like it used to be back in the days when my dad was guiding. We used to go drive around the Everglades on my little Hell's Bay and just find schools of hundreds of them just in big balls. And like I haven't seen that in five years, six years. Like occasionally you run into like a group of them. Like occasionally you find a big school, but most of the time it's, it's not like it used to be back there. Everglades restoration was supposed to fix this. It was supposed to bring back the fresh water that kept the seagrass healthy and the bonefish happy. We know we can't get the old Everglades back, but we were supposed to be able to get it to function the way it used to and get the fresh water back into the bay. Instead, we just keep building more townhouses and resorts. A new one is now being planned for Grassy Key. The heritage and history of this very special place was our inspiration. Valhalla. An ad claims it'll be the largest in the Keys, located at ground zero for some of the best bonefish and tarpon fishing in the world. Tell that to the Chica Lodge. The old lodge that opened in the 1940s has stopped offering guiding services since all the big bonefish have disappeared. When Klein goes out now, he always takes a water monitoring kit to test the salinity, pushed higher because of the lack of fresh water. He says he's been testing the water pretty regularly for the last 15 years. I just checked it right here in Alamorada, and it's 48. And that's just, that's just bad. That's about 50% higher than what it should be. We just can't get water here for some reason. And, you know, we're, you know, a lot of things are coming, but we need water right now because we're in a drought and we don't want to see, you know, what was it, 10, 12 years ago when we had that big um, drought in the summer and it killed seven to nine square miles in Florida Bay over by Flamingo. 
If they can get more fresh water into the bay again, Klein thinks the fish will come back. Hurricane Irma showed how quickly things can change. The storm dumped more than a foot of rain across the region. Our fishing in the backcountry went nuts. I mean, just zillions of redfish showed up, snook, and it was just, it made fishing so much fun and so easy and, and made everything better. And that lasted for three or four years of just spectacular fishing. But then the salinity shot back up, and it's back to where it was before. That's meant fewer fish, fewer spots to fish, and a harder time making a living off a bay that was once the center of the sport fishing capital. And Klein's not alone. All over Florida's coast, from the St. Lucie and Caloosahatchee rivers to the north, to Biscayne Bay, to Florida Bay, people who live and work and play here are suffering the consequences of a sick Everglades. Klein's been here so long, he can remember the good old days. But for a lot of newcomers, they don't know what they're missing. I still check some of the old spots and stuff like that. But it's, it's, um, it's still one of the best places by far in the world to come. You always heard Alamorada, the sport fishing capital of the world, right? And that's, there's lots of places where you can go and catch more bonefish, more marlin, more of this or that, right? But there's no place with a 30-minute ride, one side of the island to the other, where you can catch as many species, you know, from all our backcountry species to offshore species. There's, you know, it's a cool place to, to live. Before we leave, we head over to one of those special places. It's a U-shaped mangrove island called Horseshoe Key. The trees are full of wading birds. Schools of mullet splash all around. Suddenly, a dolphin leaps out of the water on its back, kind of like Flipper, and grabs a mullet. Is it a baby or? Oh! oh! Oh, that was so cool. Upside down. Got a fish. Upside down. That was good. Look. This is what Klein does a lot now, and he's happy. That was such a cool bite. That thing was upside down with the mullet in his mouth. The high wind made it nearly impossible to fish today, but Klein doesn't care. He's out here with his son, watching dolphins play, and still exploring the islands where he grew up. Hey, why we're, let's go back in there. I want to get a picture of James and I together. You mind? Let's go back up in there and hop in the boat, James. I'll follow you. And part of that optimism means he hasn't given up yet. We need to change. We keep doing the same thing year after year after year, and then it's always waiting for this project and that project, and nothing happens. And so we need to. We just need water, some way or another. We need water in our bay before it dies again. That should have happened by now, but it hasn't. You're listening to Bright Lit Place. On the next episode, we'll go back to when the idea for comprehensive restoration first came up and the promise was made 40 years ago to save the Everglades. I'm Darth Vader talking up there. The drift of it was, your expectation is we're not going to do anything. My expectation is we will. And I said, Governor, the good news is on the front cover. The bad news is on page 123. Bright Lit Place is a WLRN news podcast distributed by the NPR Network. 
It was reported by me, Jenny Stiletovich, and edited by Rowan Moore-Garrity. Merritt Jacob is our sound engineer and composed our original music. Check out our website, brightlitplace.org, to see photography from Patrick Farrell and web design from Laura Kurtzberg and Kai Wilson. WLRN's Director of Enterprise Journalism, Jessica Bakeman, helped with editing and production. Special thanks to Vice President for News, Sergio Bustos, and the whole team at WLRN News. This podcast is part of the Pulitzer Center's nationwide Connected Coastlines reporting initiative. For more information, go to pulitzercenter.org slash connectedcoastlines. If you've enjoyed Bright Lit Place and want to support more local journalism like it, please consider donating to WLRN. Hit the donate button at WLRN.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.